What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sports media and sports in general are sort of like all the problems we have in society on like mescaline, you know, like they're it's just amplified. It's on steroids. It's just way more pronounced and obvious than it is maybe in the rest of society. Um, And, you know, it, it does seem like there's a real core group of of men who believe that this is their world and that anyone coming into it is trying to take their world away from them. And um, that's been pretty pronounced. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we talk to the author of the new book, Sidelines, Sports Culture and Being a Woman in America. That author is the great Julie DeCaro. Can't wait to speak to her. Also, I've got some choice words about the most important sports story that you are not hearing about. I also have the Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down Awards. But first, let's talk to Julie DeCaro. So I'll, I'll just start. I'll just, how are you feeling now that the book is uh, is finally hit the stands? Uh, you know, I'm a little anxious about it. Um, there's some stuff in there that I knew there was going to be a strong reaction to, and there has been. So there's a little, you know, underlying level of anxiety, I think. But at the same time, it's, you know, there was a lot of stuff that I felt like needed to be said and that I wanted to say. Um, so, you know, it's out there in the world now and you just got to kind of let it go and let the chips fall where they may. Exactly. The scary thing is it doesn't belong to you anymore. Right. The world. It's scary. Um, now I wanted to ask you, there's so much I want to ask you about the content of the book, but I just wanted to start by talking about, you know, the first week of the book being out. Um, your book got some unexpected and possibly illegal exposure. Can, can yeah, you speak it did. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I knew that the guys over at Barstool and particularly the Kirk Minahan show were not going to like what I wrote about them. Um, I, you know, had a lot of other women talking about their experiences with Barstool or with the Kirk Minahan show. And so I was ready for that. And I've been dealing with the Kirk Minahan, well, the Barstool guys for, you know, six years and Kirk Minahan for about a year. 
Um, they've been constantly trolling me. And every time I put anything out into the world, be it a podcast or an article or I get a new job or whatever, they all run over to downrate it and give it one stars or tell my employer how horrible I am. They shouldn't have hired me. So I knew that was going to come. Um, they surprised even me by, you know, reading the entire book on YouTube for seven and a half hours, um, which obviously is a copyright violation. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't I don't know. I mean, I, you know, just when I always think like they can't go lower than this, they seem to go lower. So here we are. You know, why do you think uh, your book, the content thereof, is so upsetting to the, let's call them the pig royalty of sports media? <laughs> um, you know, it, they've been this way from the beginning. If anyone calls them out on the stuff that they do, the stuff they write, the stuff they put out into the world, they're, they go into attack mode and they're, you know, they come down on you like a nuclear bomb. Um, I don't know, because they're constantly calling everyone else snowflakes and talking about how sensitive the world is. But I mean, they can't handle criticism in any way, shape or form. So it, it's been that way with them. You know, I've been dealing with them since 2016 in this way. Um, I know a lot of other women have as well and men, too. And um, this is sort of their modus operandi. And, and no one ever tells them it's not OK to do this. They have a, you know, a CEO who's out there liking this stuff when they do it. So um I don't know. I mean, unless somebody stands up to them at some point, they're just going to keep doing it. Okay, so 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 let's just say fuck them. Um, Let's (laughs) talk about the book. Uh, What inspired you to write the book? I mean, there are all sorts of things you could have done. You could have done podcast series about women in sports media. You could have written some articles, but you chose to write a book. What, What inspired you to do that? You know, I was um, sort of screaming into the void on Twitter pretty regularly. I still do about the the things that affect women um, who work in sports media and in media in general and women in the world. And I had a, a guy from a publishing house reach out to me and say, you know, you should put this into a book and just stop putting it on Twitter. Um, and in that sort of inspired me to say, hey, you know, maybe there really is maybe I do have something to say. And I, you know, got an agent. And and then when I got the book proposal finished, that publishing house that reached out to me didn't want the book. So <laughs> I wound up, it worked out fine for me. I mean, we just moved on to someone else. Um, but I, it, you know, I think when you're a writer, you're always like, oh, I'm going to write a book someday. But it's hard to have that idea coalesce into the book you're going to write, um, especially when you're, you know, you have a day job and kids and everything else. It just sort of always gets put on the back burner. So it really was someone else reaching out to me and saying, like, you should put this in a book that that finally sort of pushed me to do it. You know, I, I felt like, you know, from the time I heard you were writing it to when it came out, I thought that was actually a nice rapid pace. I mean, what did it feel like when you were writing? Was it cathartic? <laughs> Here's the thing, Dave. I mean, I know you've written a lot of books. And, and at this point, I'm assuming that you are good at writing books. I mean, I know the end product is great. I don't know what your process is like. But my process was pretty much like my writing process always is, which is put it off until the last minute and then write the whole thing really quickly. So um, I felt like, I don't know, it, it wasn't cathartic. It was more sheer terror that I wasn't going to make my deadline. And um, once I got that out of the way, then it was okay. But it's frustrating when you're writing about things that are happening in, you know, the news in the real world, because more things are happening while the book is like Mm -hmm. untouchable. Right. So like you turn it in and you can't make any more changes and there's still like six months to go until it comes out. And meanwhile, all these things are happening, like Mickey Calloway and um, Jared Porter getting fired by the Mets and all these things that I would have 
love to have put in the book. So that was like sort of terrifying for me and sort of frustrating that like, oh my God, I just want to have it back and just to add one paragraph on this. But, um, you know, I guess, you, you know, at some point you, you can't include everything. Yeah, it's the old notorious moving target yeah. of the book. And at some point you got to step away from the painting, which is sometimes really hard. Yeah. So some questions for you. How did you get, because I know this was not career number one for you. How did you get into this business? And when did you realize that facing down rank misogyny was just going to be part of your gig? Oh, God. Uh, well, you know, I... I, wa- I went to journalism school initially because I wanted to be in sports media. And way back in the 90s when I was in college, there wasn't a, there weren't a ton of women to look at and say, OK, that's the path I want to take. Um, certainly not to the, the extent that I felt like it was viable for me. Um, so I went to law school and I, you know, became a lawyer and I was practicing and I still loved sports and was, you know, knee deep in sports every chance I got. And, um, when blogging became a thing in, you know, the mid early two thousands, um, I, you know, I started hanging out on the first SB nation sports blogs. And then I eventually started my own and got a following and that blog got picked up by the Chicago Tribune. And that was sort of the start of everything, because um, once I was associated with the Tribune, I feel like things started happening pretty fast. But, you know, it was a good 15 years, 10, 15 years after I thought that that would happen or, or that, that I wanted it to happen um, when I came out of college. So um, that was sort of my entree into sports media and then into uh, sports talk radio. And then once I got into sports talk radio, the following kept growing. And so then it was easier to get writing gigs and, and everything just sort of snowballed from there. But um yeah, I mean, like I said, you know, there's a whole idea that you have to see it to to achieve it, right? Or you have to see it to know that you can be it. And, you know, when you only saw one woman here, one woman there on the sidelines or, you know, Melissa Isaacson was covering the Bulls for the Chicago Tribune, but there weren't really any other women in any kind of number to look at and say, okay, I want to follow Andrea Kramer's path or I want to follow Laura Oakman's path, um, or at least that I was aware of at the time. So, um, you know, I just wound up like a lot of people doing something else for a while. Mm -hmm. And when did you realize that misogyny was just part of the package of being in this world of sports Mm -hmm. media? Was there a moment or was it just something that you recognized from the beginning? You know, in 2013, before I was even working in sports media, I I wrote a piece for Deadspin about um, Jameis Winston's accuser, and I was comparing her behavior after the rape that everyone was pointing at to say, um, this is proof it didn't happen, to the way that I acted after I was sexually assaulted and said, you know, to me, this makes perfect sense. I, I did the exact same thing. Um, and that's when I realized that FSU Twitter was a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might have been the beginning of it. But, you know, it really sort of ramped up in earnest when I was reporting on Pat the sexual assault allegations against Patrick Kane uh, in 2015. And, you know, just the little things along the way, you know, people complaining about the sound of your voice and, you know, um, people not believing something you say until it's verified by a guy. Those are things I didn't really experience in law. So it was pretty early on 2014, 2015 of getting into the industry that I immediately knew that it just it felt different right from the start. OK, so it's 2021 now. Do you think the the landscape for for women is better or worse than when you started doing this? Depends on what you're talking about. I mean, I guess if you're talking about women being hired into higher profile roles, it's it's marginally better. Um, I feel like we do see women 
um, doing more things in the broadcast booth. We see more women in positions of hiring and firing. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, no matter who you are and how prestigious you are and how uh, your job is and how intelligent and respected you are, you get on social media and it's still the same thing for all of us. So, I mean, I, I hope things are getting better. I, you know, for the last 40 years since the first women went into the locker room, they've been holding the door open for the women that come behind. And we keep waiting for this big rush of women to come through and it just keeps not happening. Um, so, you know, I'm eternally hopeful. There's a ton of, of young women studying sports communication, sports broadcasting, sports media at college campuses right now. And you hope that they make it into the industry and find their way into higher positions that will hold the door open for the ones coming behind them. Yeah, I just spoke to a, a sports media class over Zoom, 15 students, small conservative school in Ohio, 13 of the 15 were women. That's great. And that was so cool. That's not typical. I'm not trying to say that's typical, but it really put put a smile on the face here. Yeah, for sure. Do you think there is a specific misogyny in sports media that's above and beyond either we could call it the broader media landscape or society itself even? Does it concentrate itself in sports media? And what reason do you think it's so rancid in this particular corner of the world? Yeah, you know, I've heard from women who work in, say, the music industry saying it's the same over here. Women, obviously, gaming has been a huge area of, of rife misogyny, especially with Gamergate sort of kicking this whole thing off. Um, it, it does seem more pronounced in sports. And the, and the reason that I wrote the book the way I did is because I was telling people, you know, that sports media and sports in general are sort of like all the problems we have in society on like mescaline, you know, like they're, it's just amplified. It's on steroids. It's just way more pronounced and obvious than it is maybe in the rest of society. Um, and you know, it, it does seem like there's a real core group of, of men who believe that this is their world and that anyone coming into it is trying to take their world away from them. And, um, that's been pretty pronounced. There's, you know, I've, I've had so many guys, not just one guy, but more than one guy say to me, you know, I come to sports to get away from women. The last thing I want to hear when I turn on the radio is a woman's voice. So it seems to be an escape that <laughs> it's great, right? There seems to be an escape I'm that a lot of men assume sports is their escape from, from women. And they really resent us coming into it. Um, I grew up after I was born after the advent of title nine. Um, I sports have been as huge a part of my life, central part of my life as an athlete, as a fan, as it has been of any guy. So, you know, why men assume that this is their little, you know, fiefdom that no one's allowed to come into. I'm not entirely sure, but it, there does seem to be a group that is just holding on to this is my enclave to get away from women like grim death. Mm. Now, let's get to the book itself, Sidelined. It's such a good book. I recommend it so Thanks, strongly guys. to people to check out. I wish it could be required reading for everybody in sports media or everybody in, in media in general. Um, you interview so many, you have so many good interviews in the book. Like it's a great act of reportage, the book on the whole. What, was it difficult to get people to talk about their experiences, particularly women? No. Um, which was surprising, especially um, when I put out a call. 
sort of on Twitter, if you have a Me Too experience in sports media, you know, please reach out to me. I'd love to hear your story. Um, when I put out a call for, you know, if you've experienced um, online harassment and it's, inter- it's interfered with your job, um, I got tons of women responding, even some who didn't want to go on the record, but just wanted to tell somebody that it had happened. So, uh, you know, there's a there's a huge whisper network in, in sports media of women talking to each other about what has happened to them because they feel like they can't say it publicly. And and I think there was something about sort of, you know, telling who the other people were who were who were going to be in the book and that I was putting my experiences in the book that there's strength and safety in numbers. Right. I mean, I think we all sort of felt that. Um, so it was it was fairly easy. Some people I just reached out to and said who I didn't think would be willing to talk. Um, and they said, sure, yeah, I'll talk. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think that there is sort of an appetite to to let people know what is happening. Um, and like I said, you know, it's it's easier to do when other people are doing it at the same time. What interview in the book for you really stands out? Like call it your holy shit interview where uh, you really felt like the person opened up and revealed something about the sports media world that maybe you didn't expect or you were just really, really proud to have their voice in the book. Jen Decker, um, people probably know her as Jen Sturger, who um, was infamously made famous, infamously made famous, who was, you know, infamously discovered, I guess is the word by Brett Musburger um, during a college football game. And she went on to have his great career in sports media, but she's experienced just blatant sexism everywhere along the way, including, um, you know, having people blame her for ending, quote unquote, ending Brett Favre's career, ruining his life. She's never even met Brett Favre. She's never talked to the guy. Um, She'd passed him in the hallway and that was it. And hearing what she's gone through, um, I thought was really poignant and and so unfair and, and emblematic of the way that we want women to be beautiful and nothing else in this industry. Mm. No, absolutely. I mean, I've read a little bit about her story in recent years, and it's just an absurdity what people have hung onto her. Yeah. Um, when, when all she did was pass someone in the hallway. I mean, the reason she says in the book, the reason that she they even got their hands on those picks was because she was having someone do some IT work for her and they downloaded her hard drive and sent it out to a bunch of men um, who were all sharing the pics that she had on there. I mean, what she's gone through is just, yeah, absurd. Is there anyone you wanted to interview who you could not get through to? Yeah, Serena Williams. I tried so hard. I, I wanted, I have a chapter where I talk about crying at work and sort of rage crying and why women rage cry. And um, I kept thinking about the the 2018 U.S. Open um, and, and us all watching her go through what we have so experienced at work a million times where you are being treated unjustly, usually by a man who's condescending to you. And you're it feels so unfair and you want to rage, but all you can do is cry. And I think a lot of us um, identified with her in that moment. And I really wanted to talk with her. I tried going through tennis people. I tried going through her her rap. I just couldn't get to her. But I hope she reads the book and I hope she appreciates what that moment was for for a lot of women. Mm. And what's been the, the early reaction of particularly of women in the business to your book? 
Um, you know, I think a lot of people are just reading it right now, right? So it's only been out a couple of days. Um, but I, you know, I've had it's been I've had women um, reach out to me privately and say, you know, I was this just happened to me at my job, and I was reading this chapter on it, and I I so could identify with it because I know exactly this feeling, and that was sort of what I was getting at. Like I never set out to write a sports book. I wanted it to be a book about. Um, what sports tells us on sort of a grand scale about the things that women are going through in every industry. So hearing women um, identify with parts of it, it has been um, the best thing. Or I, I had a woman reach out to me and say, like, I didn't realize that I was the only one or that I wasn't the only one dealing with like sustained online harassment. I thought it was just me. Um, I didn't realize this was happening to other women as well. Um, so, you know, those kinds of things are really gratifying to hear. No, I'm sure. Um, can you connect the dots for us between the treatment of women in sports? And I'm thinking about the news this week about the NCAA and uh, everything from weight rooms to COVID yeah. testing and how the women are being treated in San Antonio as opposed to the men in Indianapolis. Can you, can you connect the dots between that and the treatment of women journalists? Yeah, I think it's all part of the same thing, which is that we are somehow illegitimate in this space, that we are interlopers, whether it's women behind the microphone, whether it's women on the court. Um, this is a space that that too many men feel like women do not belong in. Um, and it's funny because it's even guys who don't play sports who will tell like WNBA players that they don't belong here. Um, and it's, it's a disrespect that goes on from, you know, a, a girls who want to cover sports for their high school newspaper all the way up to women um, wanting to cover sports in the later stages of their careers. There's there's sort of um, this feeling that, that we are less than when it comes to everything across the board. So, I mean, we saw the same thing in the WNBA bubble down in Orlando, right? I mean, they said they had, they were staying in a hotel that had bed bug traps under the bed and people were finding condoms in their room. And, you know, I mean, it was just, it was disgusting. And it seems like it's the same thing. You would think that, you know, the NCAA would be smart enough by now to see what had happened with the WNBA bubble and decided that's not going to happen here. But, you here we are. There, there's been a, a wave of legislative and state attacks on trans women in sports over the last uh, several weeks, just like a, sh a shocking number yeah. of states, one after the other, very coordinated across the board. How does that um, fit into the matrix of what you're talking about? I think that, well, first of all, I mean, none of these guys who who are so concerned about high school girl sports ever gave a rat's ass about high school girl sports before it became a way to control women's bodies, right? Which is the right wing's favorite thing to do is tell women what they can and can't do with their bodies. Um, and that extends down to girls. So to have this group of guys who never cared about funding high school sports, never cared about promoting girls, high school sports or youth sports or NCAA sports, never gave a moment's thought to any of that stuff are suddenly now in the middle of a pandemic, more invested in keeping trans girls from competing with other girls than they are with anything else that's happening in America right now, which is absolutely appalling to me. Um, I, I think that it's an entree into uh, regulating trans people's bodies in general. I think once they say they are doing a test with this, they're taking a flyer to see how much they can get away with. Some of these laws have been accompanied by laws making it illegal for kids to transition before a certain age. So 
Um, you know, I don't know what it is about the GOP that they have this obsession with other people's bodies. Um, but if, to me, it's all part of the same idea. We don't care about this unless we can control something about it and control something about women. And if that's the case, then we want to be a part of it. And this is one of those things that I was talking about, Dave, where like I sort of I wish that I had had this on my radar in a bigger way before the book, you know, was cut off from making any changes to it, because I think it's something important. I know Katie Barnes is writing a book. I'm sure that they will, you know, put this in there will be featured prominently in what they're writing about. Um, but it's uh, it, it's one of those things that is really appalling. I, I know Chris Mosier has been doing a lot of speaking out about this, has have a lot of other people. Um, so I, I'm hoping that, that someone does a real takedown from top to bottom of what this kind of legislation looks like and what it means. Hey, Katie Barnes. There, there, there you go. I've heard about that book as well. It's a, yeah, it's going to it's going to be some some groundbreaking stuff there. Now, I got to ask you the change question. It's not your job to come up with solutions. You know, but that should be the job of the sports industry itself, the people who have the power to pull the levers in the sports industry. But I have to ask you, what do you think is the most effective way to see change in this industry? Other, oh, that's a, that's, other than buying your book, of course. Yeah, yeah, buy my book. That'll change everything. That should fix it all. <laughs> um, <laughs> Dave Zarin says so. Yes. Um, you know, it's funny because I always thought once we get women in positions of hiring and firing, things are going to change. Once we get women who are not just executive producers, but who are program directors, who are, you know, um, whatever, whatever that equivalent role is at every station across the country, um, that's when things will change. But, you know, here in Chicago, we had a woman take over Entercom Chicago. And the first thing she did was fire both women on my station, myself and Maggie Hendricks. So it's not always getting women in roles of hiring and firing. It's getting women in roles of hiring and firing that, um, I guess, aren't willing to do the work of the patriarchy, who are willing to take a risk. And, and that's the big thing about sports media, as I'm sure you know, Dave, is that, you know, everybody wants to expand their audience. Nobody wants to take a risk. So yeah. I would say, you know, to my programming director all the time, why aren't we going after women who are huge, especially in Chicago, just enormous percentage of the fan base, but don't listen to sports talk radio because they don't feel welcome. And I, and every single time I was told, you know, our, our demographic is men 18 to 54. And I'd be like, but don't you want a bigger share of the audience? Isn't that what everybody wants in radio? And just, you know, our demographic is men 18 to 54. So you got to have, you know, I think we need to put not just women, but more women, more black women, more people of color across the board. So we get a, a, a sports media landscape that looks more like the fan base. We don't have that right now. And, and that's what I think sports media should reflect. And especially if you take ESPN out of the mix, the diversity and inclusion numbers are just absolutely abysmal. So, you know, it, it, I, I want to say it, it's, you know, we need more women in those positions. But I guess what we need are people who are willing to hire people who don't look like them. Put people on the air who you haven't seen before. Um, take a chance and, and do the right thing and stop. I mean, I keep seeing shows debut that have like four white guys sitting there. And I just don't understand why we as a fan base continue to accept this when this is not what we look like across the board. And, and that's what I really think needs to change, a desire to have the la media landscape reflect the fan base. Yeah, what, what do you think about ESPN's role in creating a more diverse landscape? Because there's a lot of on the one hand, on the other hand. Yeah, with ESPN. there is. Um, 
I, I mean, I, I appreciate that there is a large number of young women going into sports media and media because they have turned on ESPN and they've seen women who look like them doing a job they want to do. That, I think, is hugely important. Um, of course, on the other hand, all of us who have friends who work at ESPN know the stuff that happens behind the scenes, the rumors, the, um, the things that people put up with. I've been told by several women that there is one very popular ESPN uh, personality who sort of goes out of his way to marginalize women, um, especially if they're on his show. Um, so that is you know, something that obviously is a huge problem. And of course, we had the New York Times article where there were a lot of people at ESPN speaking out about what they, um, you know, the way the treatment that they received as as black journalists. So, yeah, I mean, there is a lot of, okay, this, but then also this. Um, It's probably what comes along when you have an outlet that is that big. Um, But yeah, I mean, for sure, there's a lot of stuff that has gone on behind the scenes at ESPN that is troubling. And and I wrote about some of that in the book, especially with Jen Sturger and uh, with uh, Adrian Lawrence, who experienced it. Mm. And, you know, the the book is called Sidelined Sports Culture and Being a Woman in America. One last question for you, Julie. Everybody I know who's written a book, music plays a role, either something they play when they're writing or something they listen to when they're done writing to chill themselves out after the experience. What was on your playlist as you were putting this together? A lot of Fleetwood Mac. Oh, I was just tell my, I would just tell my little Google home thing on my desk, just play Fleetwood Mac. I don't know. It was something to do with the dreams, um, vid- TikTok video that came out and mm. I don't know, it just sort of mellowed me out and put, you know, cause a lot of times my, I'm writing and I can feel like my heart rate going up as I'm getting angry and stuff. And something about Fleetwood Mac just sort of mellowed me out while I was writing. And so that was hugely helpful. Wow. Fleet, Fleetwood Mac. That's such a great call. Thanks. It's, I also had a lot of uh, SVU on in the background uh, while I was writing. So that was huge, too. A lot of Mariska Hardigay for yeah. inspiration. Olivia Benson. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> Olivia Benson. Yeah. Julie, thank you so much for your time. Uh, the book is Sidelined Sports Culture and Being a Woman in America. I hope it blows up as it should. Thanks so much, Dave. Thanks for your support. I really appreciate it. Of course. We'll be back right after this, after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. And now a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. If you want to stay on the cutting edge of the cultural conversation, you need to subscribe to The Nation's newest newsletter, Books and the Arts. With this newsletter, you'll receive a curated selection of the nation's latest cultural criticism, along with a short essay exclusively for newsletter subscribers written by the books and the arts editors themselves. Don't worry, we won't clog your inbox. The world of books, arts, music, film, and more will be delivered to your inbox every two weeks. It's something worth looking forward to. Subscribe to this thought-provoking, agenda-setting newsletter at thenation.com slash book newsletter. That's thenation.com slash book newsletter. All one word. Subscribe today. And now, we are back on the podcast with some choice words. And now I've got some choice words about the most important story that you are not seeing on ESPN or its assorted copycat networks. It is a story that affects multiple sports, but most primarily football. The NFL is in the midst of a free agent frenzy, signing players to $100 million deals to the breathless panting of sports media carnival barkers. And the NFL just signed a 
billion in future television deals. But new developments in the science of diagnosing brain damage threatens not only those nine-figure contracts or 12-figure contracts, but the entire multi-billion dollar football industry as well. Until now, diagnosing the remorseless brain disease, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, could only be done after death. Former NFL players have died, some by shooting themselves in the chest or hanging themselves to preserve their skulls, and their families have donated their brains to science so CTE could be diagnosed post-mortem. These studies have been damning, yet critics have always said that the high rate of CTE found in these players' brains is flawed since they were donated from people who have shown signs of CTE. In other words, if a former player has symptoms such as early onset Alzheimer's, memory loss, suicidal ideation, or other forms of what is in layman's terms brain damage, then their families are more likely to donate their brains to these studies. This explanation has also allowed NFL executives, franchise owners, players, and fans to put CTE out of their thoughts. Meanwhile, the league has adopted cosmetic changes to the rules and the equipment to market the illusion that it is safer, or even safe at all, to play tackle football. Yet science is not on the NFL's side, and the more our ability to detect CTE in the living improves, the greater the existential threat becomes to the future of the almighty religion that is football. The latest scientific news is that over two dozen scientists funded by the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke have produced the first consensus criteria to diagnose CTE among the living. This paper is a step towards what's called a biomarker that can definitively say whether a living person is suffering from CTE. This study, while not perfectly able to diagnose CTE during life, will help identify CTE's unique symptoms that result from head injuries determine its prevalence among athletes, and allow medical professionals to better determine the risks involved from suffering concussions. It is a massive step forward. In the near future, athletes of any age will be able to be diagnosed. Currently, the great unknown for CTE is when it develops. Is it youth football, high school, college, the pros? We know from youth suicide cases, so tragically, that CTE can not only be detectable at an early age, but also shockingly widespread throughout the brain. That was the condition of New England Patriot and murderer Aaron Hernandez, who was found to have a terrible case of CTE following his jailhouse suicide by hanging. I reached out to Dr. Chris Nowinski, former guest on this show, co-founder and CEO of the Concussion Legacy Foundation, and several lifetimes ago, Nowinski was a professional wrestler who suffered from concussions. He said, as we inch closer to definitively diagnosing CTE in living people, we should anticipate many difficult conversations. For example, CTE in athletes is preventable, and we know the onset of the disease can occur in minors. If we diagnose a 16-year-old football player with CTE, should youth football continue? Adult athletes may soon learn they have CTE while they're still playing. Will they retire? It's difficult to predict how individuals will respond when we can finally diagnose the disease in life, and we should begin to prepare for that day. 
Nowinski really hits the nail on the head, pardon the expression. CTE is a degenerative disease that worsens with repeated impact and abuse to the brain. If youth, high school, or college football players can be diagnosed with it, it puts the NFL's entire talent pipeline in a great deal of jeopardy, not to mention its future financial prospects. The days of plausible deniability by the NFL, by players, and by fans will be coming to a screeching halt in the next several years. The league's plans for dealing with that inevitability remain an unknown. One thing is certain. Slogans like football is family and moms for football athletic clinics are no longer going to cut it. We are officially past the point of CTE being a subject of debate. The new debate will be over football itself. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award this week is a tragic one. We are, of course, still mourning the deaths in Atlanta after a racist shooting spree left eight people dead, six of them of Asian descent. And this was then compounded by law enforcement saying that the white supremacist shooter was really just, quote unquote, having a bad day. And then, of course, we learned that members of those law enforcement forces in Georgia were also putting up racist anti-Chinese memes on Facebook. And the sheriff is formerly a member of Blackwater in Iraq, showing, I think, the connection between racist empire abroad and deadly anti-Asian sentiment and anti-Asian hate here at home. It's all unconscionable. But the Just Stand Up Award goes to NBA player and the legend of insanity, Jeremy Lin. We didn't heed Jeremy Lin, who along with many public figures of Asian descent, were trying to warn the broader country about the climate in this country. And I want to read what Jeremy Lin said after going public with racial slurs he was receiving on the court And this is just days before the killings in Atlanta. This is just a part of what he said. I wanted to share that everybody is susceptible to these types of things and to racism. But to me, that's not the main focus. The goal isn't like, woe is me, look at this situation. The real issues right now are the people that are dying, the people that are getting spit on, the people that are getting robbed, the people that are getting burned, the people that are getting stabbed. That's where the attention needs to be. Lord, I wish we'd listen to Jeremy Lin, but let's listen to him going forward and let's listen to all the Asian, Asian American, and Pacific Islander voices who are letting us know with a five alarm fire about the deadly climate in this country right now. As for the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. And this is a big sit your ass down. There are actually a lot of candidates this week. 
but it's March Madness, so please, let's go at the NCAA on a couple of fronts. First, there's the hashtag that everyone should check out. It's hashtag not NCAA property. And it's people ranging from Division One athletes playing in March Madness to Division Three athletes, uh, you know, plying their trade at small colleges without scholarships, who are all telling stories about just some of the fundamental injustices of the NCAA, particularly the way they act like they own your name, image, and likeness, which also means anything that you produce while you're a student. It's utterly unconstitutional. I mean, the NCAA needs to be thrown in the dust heap of history. We all know that. But I have to say the other and more high-profile anti-NCAA story from this week is just the utter exposure of the contrast between the men's Final Four taking place in Indianapolis and the amenities for the women at their Final Four tournament. Uh, in San Antonio. This contrast was first highlighted by Stanford sports performance coach Ali Kirshner, who posted two photos on Instagram. One photo, according to Kirshner, was the men's setup showing benches and other types of weight equipment. The other photo of the women's setup shows a couple of dumbbells and some yoga mats. In her post, Kirshner included the handles for NCAA women's basketball, the NCAA in March Madness saying, this needs to be addressed. Kirshner also wrote, these women want and deserve to be given the same opportunities. Not only that, three weeks in a bubble and no access to dumbbells above 30s until the sweet 16. In a year defined by a fight for equality, this is a chance to have a conversation and get better, end quote. Dawn Staley, uh, the basketball legend and coach at South Carolina also uh, issued a blistering statement about the disparities at play. And here's another disparity in the NCAA relative bubbles between men's and women's sports. The women are getting the less accurate COVID antigen tests while the men are getting PCR tests known as the gold standard. This is absurd. It violates Title IX left and right. And I think we have to remember the words of Jay Billis because the NCAA, are, they're now saying all the right things about, oh, we're going to remedy this. Oh, it's a misunderstanding. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's that. But as Jay Billis says, don't look at what the NCAA says. Look at what they do. And if we're looking at what the NCAA is doing, we know that this is an operation that absolutely stinks to high heaven. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Uh, thank you so much to Julie DeCaro. Thank you so much to all of you out there listening. Thank you to the producer of this podcast, David Tigabu. Thank you to the people who make this show what it is. The response we got from our recent shows about the struggles for trans athletic rights um, really did great and were actually used and appreciated by people on the front lines of that struggle. But that doesn't happen without you, the listener, spreading the word. So thank you so much for that. If you like the show, please go to iTunes, uh, write up a little review, tell a friend. All of that makes a huge difference. If you want to financially support the show, which is something we would never turn down, because we need the support to make this a reality. 
go to patreon.com slash edge of sports pod. Thank you everybody for listening. Don't forget to mask up. We are out of here. Stay frosty. Peace. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.